I saw an item in the news last fall uh, that might make you mad. It might make you mad, especially because it's tax season. Uh, the story was, uh, the articles that I read were about Senator Tom Coburn and his investigation into the Social Security disability checks that are being made to a 30-year-old man from California whose name is Stanley Thornton, Jr., and the payments made to his roommate and caregiver, who is a woman by the name of Sandra Diaz. Uh, Stanley Thornton has a condition known as adult baby syndrome. Uh, now, if this were in a psychiatric association meeting, uh, we could maybe talk about the clinical diagnosis of paraphilic infantilism, uh, which is a disorder where people experience arousal through mimicking infant behavior, which sounds very strange to me. That, I don't think, is the case with Stanley Thornton. Stanley Thornton, by his claims, has experienced so much trauma in his life that the only way he feels truly comfortable and happy is by acting like a baby. He sucks on a huge pacifier, he wears diapers and onesies, and he sleeps in a special crib made for his size. Now, what made Senator Coburn wonder about this, the need that Thornton has to receive Social Security uh, disability checks, and what makes this seem like something other than just a terrible tragedy is the fact that Thornton not only uh, has adult baby syndrome, but he uh, runs a website for people in his condition. Uh, and, and he has um, enough skill to go to the hardware store and buy the lumber that he used to build the high chair that he needs to sit in to hold his 350-pound frame. And when he, goes himself, when he goes out to save himself the embarrassment, he doesn't wear his Snoopy fleece pajamas. He wears normal adult clothes. Does Stanley Thornton suffer from a condition or is he gaming the system? I don't know, I really don't know, uh, but I want to ask you this morning about your response to Stanley Thornton. How do you feel about this story? Uh, Maybe like Senator Coburn, you're angry that taxpayer money is being used to support him. Anybody who can run a website and at least go to the lumber store to build a high chair for himself maybe doesn't need government support. Uh, Maybe you're confused about this condition. Uh, maybe some of you are moved with compassion and, and pity. This is your, your chief thought. Me, I, frankly, as I think about it, I'm a little repulsed by this. Um, I saw a picture of him sitting in his high chair and sucking on his pacifier in his fleecy pajamas, and it was a revolting picture. Uh, this is not the way life is supposed to work. Normal men capable of dressing themselves and running websites and building chairs should not be acting like babies. Those behaviors don't go together. Being an adult and, and acting like a baby, they don't fit. Something's wrong. Some of those reactions, that repulsion or that revulsion maybe that you you feel too, is supposed to be part of your life when you notice in yourself a mix of what the Apostle Paul calls the old life and the new life. My Bible is open to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. It's a passage that we are becoming increasingly familiar with in these days. It's a section of Scripture devoted to the topic of of change. It's a place where Paul speaks to us about the old life and about the new life. The old life is dark. It's separated from God. It's 
calloused to spiritual reality to the extent that people living and reveling in the old life will try to find uh, a sensation anywhere. They, they're looking for a jolt of any sort of sensuality, and that's the world in which they live. Then there is the new life, on the other hand, that conforms to what we know about Jesus. It's, it involves renewal. It involves conforming to God's holy and righteous character. And in between, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, the old life and the new life is the gospel. The gospel being that transforming message about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. Our response to that good news is turning to Christ in confident faith. You could describe it as turning from the old life to the new life. Or... um, uh, turning, uh, putting off the old and putting on the new. Paul is consistent in all of his letters when he tells us that when we do turn to Jesus Christ, um, you become identified with Him. You are united with Him and a change takes place in your life. Your old self, which is dominated by desires and darkness and sin, is crucified with Christ and God gives you new life. That, that thinking is so common in Paul, us being crucified with Christ. Let me read uh, verses, a couple of them. Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, Christ lives in me. Uh, one more, Colossians 3.2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The death of the old, the birth of the new. Now, in their book, uh, How People Change, which is a great book, uh, Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane describe this union with Christ that we have when we turn to Him. They say it's like a marriage contract. When you exchanged vows with your beloved... All of his or her assets became yours, and all of his or her liabilities also became yours. I became the co-owner of Kathy's savings account, and she became the co-debtor of my college loans. It was not a good deal for her. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, all of your liabilities become his. That's actually all you bring is liabilities. And all of his assets become yours. And part of that union means that your old self is dead. Like putting away diapers and cribs and pacifiers and bottles, your old life is gone, and yet, yet, the shadow of it still remains. And and part of this passage that we have before us, Paul is talking about not putting off that old life. Get rid of the old life Put on the new life. Um, let, let's read this again, shall we? Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 32. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. 
You were taught with regard to your former way of life, the old self, to put it off. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. After speaking in general terms of the old life and the new life in verses 17 through 24, in verses 25 through 32, Paul gets very specific about some of those old and new behaviors. In fact, he mentions five specific things he wants the the, uh, Ephesians to put off and to put on. And and there's a pattern here in this. He, he, He tells them what to put off, what to put on, and why. That's in all five of those statements. Today, we're going to look at verse 25, which is about lying. Um, next week for Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be elsewhere in the Scriptures. Uh, on April 15th, two weeks from today, Steve Wilson is going to talk about anger, which is in verses 26 and 27. Um, and then, uh, after a hiatus, we're going to be out of Ephesians on April 22nd. John Soden from Lancaster Bible College is going to be here on April 22nd. Then, at the end of April, we're going to return and talk about work and uh, stealing. But, but today, we're going to focus on verse 25, which is this echo of the ninth commandment. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Uh, lying is part of the old life. Speaking the truth is part of the new life. Put off, put on. Today, to unfold this verse, what I, what I want to do is I want to ask and answer three questions. First, I want to ask the question, uh, how pervasive is lying? How pervasive is lying in the world in which we live? Number two, I want to ask the question, why do we tell lies? What's so attractive about lying? Why do we tell them? And the third question I want to ask ask and answer is, how do we tell the truth? This is the command. How are we supposed to put on uh, honesty? How does that work out? Now, let's begin with the first question. How pervasive is lying? Uh, Let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you lied to somebody? Well, maybe you already did it today. (laughs) You walked into to church and somebody said, how are you doing? And you said, this is the best day of my life. Right, something like that. Uh, if it wasn't today lying, uh, it, it, it was probably yesterday. Uh, according to some recent research, most of us lie one time in every five social interactions. Lying is pervasive. How lying is pervasive, it's everywhere in our culture. A few years ago, Ralph Keyes wrote a book called The Post-Truth Era, Dishonesty and Deception in Contemporary Life. 
The post-truth era. Now, since today's sermon is about honesty, I will tell you, I didn't read this book. Um, I read an article about it on Albert Moeller's website. Listen to what Ralph Keyes said. According to Ralph Keyes, American society today, we have become more skilled and more nuanced in lying and deception than any generation before. Um, human beings, we have always had trouble with the truth, but Keyes argues we have mastered it. We have uh, dishonesty, he says, has become institutionalized at every level of society. Let me think with you for a minute about some examples, some common examples of how pervasive lying is. How many news stories are dominated by lying? Can you think about that? Um, do you know any famous liars? Well, uh, here's old examples, but they were really well known. Martha Stewart lied about when and why she sold stock. And Bill Clinton lied about sex. Ralph Keyes said actually that Martha Stewart embodies lying as a part of the cultural task of self-promotion. She doesn't tell the truth about anything about herself. She doesn't, she lies about, um, her name. She lies about, um, uh, her upbringing. She's lied about her marriage. She's lied about her business. That is not a good thing. Um, right now, we're trying to determine whether or not George Zimmerman lied about being attacked. That's what the police investigators in Sanford, Florida, are trying to figure out. Did, did Trayvon Martin attack him like he really said? Recently, the Supreme Court heard arguments about whether or not lying about receiving a purple heart is protected speech. That's free speech. Lying's all over the news. According to uh, another article by Poe Bronson, it was an article in the New York Magazine called Learning to Lie, lying is not pervasive only in the news. Lying is pervasive in homes, too. There was a study done of of teenagers and their communication with parents. Of 36 issues that were mentioned to teens, teenagers reported lying to their parents about 12 of them. 98% of teenagers lie to their parents. Here's some of the things. They lie about what they spent their allowances on and whether they'd started dating and what clothes they put on away from the house. They lied about what movie they went to and whom they went with. They lied about alcohol and drug use. And they lied about whether they were hanging out with friends their parents disapproved of. They lied about how they spent their afternoons while their parents were at work. They lied about whether chaperones were in attendance at a party or whether they rode in cars driven by drunken teens. Now, Bronson in his article, this is the most disturbing part about it probably, is that he writes that the most important reason that children lie is because they have been taught to lie by their parents. They hear parents lie to telemarketers on the phone. Or they tell other white lies that are necessary to smooth over social relationships. You, you tell your, your friend that you're too busy. You, you have something going on when they want to invite you to do something, but you're not really busy. You just don't want to do what they, 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 they want you to. Your kids hear it. Or you, you encourage your kids to, to profusely accept a present, a gift that they really hate. You know, they unwrap this package and it's something awful. And you think to yourself, oh, don't tell the truth. You know, say, say something nice. And, and, and they smile, oh, this is wonderful, thank you. And you, you're happy because you're teaching your children to be polite, but you're actually teaching your children to deceive. Hmm. 
Lying is pervasive in the home. Lying is pervasive in the news. Lying is pervasive at work, particularly on resumes. Nearly half a million Americans have jobs that require qualifications and degrees they do not have. Ralph Keyes spoke with the hospital administrator one time. The hospital administrator had gathered together a lot of people, a large number of people that were applying for a job. And uh, the hospital administrator said, now I'd like to tell you that um, all of your resumes will be checked independently for uh, uh, the veracity of the things that you claim on your resume. One third of the applicants got up and walked out. Who knows if the hospital administrator was telling the truth about that even though. Uh, lying is pervasive. We know it's pervasive because we have so many euphemisms for lying. You know what a euphemism is? A euphemism is when you use a more polite word instead of uh, an unvarnished, uh, a harsh word for something. Euphemisms in this case are like air freshener. You use, they, they, uh, you cover the fact that you have lied with the smell of canned flowers. It's euphemism here. Uh, we don't lie. We misspeak. We exaggerate, we exercise poor judgment, or better yet, we spin. Every political campaign spends hours strategizing and paying millions of dollars to marketers in order to spin the truth. One of my favorite historians, uh, a man by the name of Joseph Ellis, was unmasked a few years ago for lying about his military career. Listen to what he said about himself. Even in the best of lives, mistakes are made. What a Weasley sentence. Even in the best of lives, mistakes are made. Oh, well, Mr. Ellis, I'd like to see, uh, say to you, you made not a mistake, you deceived. But he, mistakes are made. Uh, We have falsehood enshrined in some of our cherished stories. You all know the truth about how George Washington chopped down that cherry tree, right? Well, that was a made-up story, obviously, by Parson Weems. It was made up by a well-meaning clergyman. He created a story in order to do what? Teach people to be honest. Isn't that ironic? Lying is pervasive in part because it it accords with the philosophy of our age. We live in a postmodern age, and one of the axioms of postmodernism is that there's no such thing as the absolute truth. There's uh, everyone who makes a truth claim is just trying to assert uh, power, is just trying to take power. They they make truth claims in order to to uh, foist their version of reality on you. And this, this sort of philosophizing showed up recently in the case of Mike Daisy. Do you know the name Mike Daisy? It was in the news recently. Mike Daisy is a man who does a one-man dramatic show about uh, former Apple CEO Steve Jobs. And he does this one-man show all over the country. And as part of the show, he talks about his visit to the Foxconn plant in China, one of the largest industrial plants in the world where they make iPads and iPods and iPhones. And Mike Daisy, and as part of his one-man show, talks about all the, the abuses that he saw in the plant in China, all the terrible things that were happening there, the, the uh, um, employees who were being poisoned and long hours and low pay. And um, he was invited, actually, to go on National Public Radio on This American Life and talk about all these things that he'd seen when he visited the Foxconn plant in China. Well, a few weeks after he went on, it was revealed that though he did go there, he made up much of what he saw and much of what he said. 
Um, he created conversations. He created details. Um, he was confronted about it. So, uh, they, they brought him back on the radio and said, hey, you, you made all this up. What's going on? And he said, well, um, I, I, uh, my lies have actually served the truth. Because I had to tell stories like that so people would know the, the truth. The lies are supposed to serve the truth. A few years ago, Edmund Morris wrote a book about Ronald Reagan. It was supposed to be an authorized biography, and he made up good portions of it. And the publisher said that he actually had improved upon the truth by making up stories that were truthful-ish. Here's uh, one, one more uh, evidence that, that lying is pervasive in our culture. Uh, think of all the ways that people lie. Here's a list I found of the most common lies. Do they sound familiar? Uh, the check is in the mail. Uh, you get this one. I'll pay next time. My wife doesn't understand me. Hmm. Trust me, I'll take care of everything. Of course I love you. It's not the money. It's the principle of the thing. I never watch television except for PBS. Here's another lie. But we can still be good friends. She means nothing to me. I'll call you later. Here's one. I've never done anything like this before. Sorry, we can't come to the phone right now. And actually the most common lie, isn't it? It says, I have read and understand this agreement. I won't ask you to raise your hand about that one. <laughs> one of the ways in which lying shows up most clearly at church is in the number of ways we try to convince every, uh, one another that everything is, is fine and that we don't have any problems. How pervasive is lying? It's everywhere. Lying is everywhere. Text says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are members of one body. Now, there's a question that I need to answer this morning, and frankly, I don't know where else to fit it in my sermon, so I'm going to cram it in right here. I don't know where else it goes, so I'm going to talk about it right here. Uh, is it ever okay to lie? Um, not too long ago, we were driving in the car downtown, and Claire said to me, she, uh, she said, Mommy said that some people buy beware of dog signs and hang them on their house even if they don't have a dog. Is that lying? Uh, what about deception during war? Is, is that okay? Is it okay? Uh, Winston Churchill before D-Day built a false looking naval base to confuse the Nazis about where they were actually going to invade in France. Is deception okay in, in wartime? What about um, spies or undercover police officers who are um, working their way into drug rings? Is that okay? In 1803, the long-run Baptist church in Louisville, Kentucky split. That's not news, but they split over lying. See, members of the, the church disagreed about whether or not during an Indian raid, you had to tell the truth to the Indians about where you had hidden your children. Uh, some, some said it's okay to lie. Some said it's not okay to lie. Do you need to tr tell the truth uh, under those circumstances? <laughs> the church couldn't agree. They split into lying Baptists and non-lying Baptists. There are examples in the Bible of lying people. 
Um, the two most common, of course, are from Exodus, where the Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh about the Hebrew women giving birth, and then Rahab, who lied to officials in Jericho about the Israelite spies. On one or two com- uh, occasions, God commanded deceit in the, the, cars, the course of war, d- using deceptive war strategies. I don't know all the answers to the is it ever okay to lie question. I really don't. But what appears to me from the Bible is that fearing God, as as Rahab and the midwives did, and lying to combat a greater evil are not always inconsistent. I'll, I'll say that again. It seems there's there's a couple of examples, at least in the Bible, where fearing God and lying to combat a greater evil are not inconsistent. Sometimes those things mix. Uh, We haven't had an Indian attack in Lancaster County in at least, I don't know, 30 years. But if I was asked, if I was asked where I was hiding my children, I think I would lie. Now, understand though, that emergency, life-threatening situations is not what Paul is talking about here. This is not your out from verse 25. You're not an undercover cop in your home, all right? That's not what he's talking about. He is talking uh, about little lies, those lies that you tell to keep the peace or to cover the tracks or to protect others' feelings. And the Bible is not unclear about those sort of lies. Now, the second question that I want to ask and answer this morning after how pervasive is lying is this question, why do we tell lies? Why are we seemingly inexorably drawn to lying? This is an easy answer. Lying saves us from a host of troubles. <laughs> it's the easy answer to that question. Lying, it saves us from a lot of trouble, doesn't it? I, I quote our dear, sainted Mary Virginia Heisey, who has said on many occasions, lying is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in trouble. The truth is often inconvenient. It's uh, Lying helps you smooth over relationships, doesn't it? And helps you avoid hurt feelings or embarrassing yourself. Lying is just a, a, a social need, so it goes. Lying smooths out life. But there's actually a deeper, more poignant answer to that question, why do we tell lies? We use lies to cover ourselves. We use lies to cover ourselves, to make up for our deficiencies, to help us get what we want, to to hide our shame. The beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, God's Word tells us that one of the consequences for uh, disobeying God is that Adam and Eve realized they were naked, the text says. Their eyes were open, they realized they were naked. Now, I don't think that this is the first time that Adam looked at himself and said, I don't have any pants on. I don't think that's what's going on. I think instead what is happening is that Adam and Eve, they feel keenly there. They're they're feeling their nakedness in a different way. One of the consequences of their disobedience of God is that they felt vulnerable and unprotected. So what does the text say they did? They covered themselves with leaves. We cover ourselves with lies to cover our deficiencies our shame, our vulnerability. We lie to cover up for what what we've done. Do do you lie to your spouse about about what you buy, about how much it really costs? 
about um, infractions that, you, that you've made to the new diet you're supposed to be on Thursday night. You're all vowing about how you're going to lose weight and you don't tell them or you lie to your spouse about the milkshake you had for lunch on Friday. Uh, do you lie about money you've wasted? What, what about that moment when your wife finds pornography on your computer or on your cell phone? Those are leaf lies. Lies that are meant to cover yourself and your shame. It's why you lie to coworkers or to, to customers. You need to cover the fact that you didn't get a project done in time or you need to make excuses for the time that you wasted when you should have been doing that project. Or you lie to clients about when you'll get that job done or uh, why you didn't get it done on time. And you're trying to cover up for your incompetence, for your mistakes, your failures. You're trying to cover up for your own unrighteousness. Last week we talked about deceitful desires. Deceitful desires are the chief doorway through which the old life breaks into the new. We lie because we think that lying will help us cover ourselves, that it will be useful. But that is not true. Lying does not deliver what it promises. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that lying doesn't rescue. Instead, lying hurts. It destroys. Proverbs 14.25 A truthful witness saves lives, which is good. But a false witness who is deceitful, he takes life. Lies don't work to do what you think they should. They may get you out of a little trouble in just a moment, but they do long-term, far-out damage that you don't see and you don't understand in the moment. And lies are that momentary fix. It's so attractive, and you think you can solve your problem, that lies do not rescue. (laughs) One day a woman went into the butcher's shop because she needed to buy chicken for dinner. And she, uh, uh, it had been a long day, it was the end of the day, and the butcher had one lone chicken left in his bin that was uh, behind the counter. So she went up to the man and she said, I'd like to buy a chicken. Well, he reached down, grabbed the only chicken, reached behind the counter. She couldn't exactly see the scale from where she was, but he put the chicken on the scale and he said, told her how much it weighs. And she said, oh, I need a little bit more than that. Do you have another one? He grabbed the chicken and he put it back in the bin and he acted like he was reaching around for another one. He picked up the same bird, put it back in the scales. He said to her, this one weighs two pounds more. She looked at him and she thought, hmm. I'll take both of them. (laughs) It looks so easy and so convenient. This will solve my problem. It will fix this. You may not get unmasked and you may not see the damage as fast as that butcher did, but it will come inevitably. Uh, The basic reason that lying is so destructive is that it destroys trust. You can't have a relationship with anybody without trust. That's why telling the truth is so central. This is the first commandment of the new life. Paul's talking about all the, of all the things he could talk about with the new life. This is where he starts. You have got to tell the truth. This verse is actually a quotation of Zechariah 8.16. And in Zechariah, the, uh, the prophet's priority is the rebuilding of the nation. And before the nation can rebuild, there must be truth. Paul wrote, we tell the truth because we're all members of one body. Lying, Paul says, in other words, is a self-inflicted wound. You can imagine if it, the, the silliness of this. If your eye 
saw a nail poking up from the floorboard, but decided to lie to your feet about it. All clear, go ahead, no problem. Ah! Or what happens if your mouth lies to your hand about where it is and the fork jabs you in the cheek? Uh, That's what lying in the community of faith is like. For your own safety, you have to tell the truth. For your own protection, you have to tell the truth. I'm sometimes amused by by people who do their best to lie to me. Um, I'm a pastor. I'm a professional holy person. I am paid to be good. And, and since I'm good all the time, some people, you know, you know that's not true, but some people, uh, in, in order to get my approval, they try to convince me they're good, they're good all the time too. You know what happens? Someday one of you dear saints will, will, will pass away and your relatives will come to the church. And it will be your relatives that will meet me and who will spend a lot of effort trying to convince you that they're really good people. Uh, I am charged, though, I am responsible before God to help people escape from the mess of life. I'm supposed to, because of uh, uh, my calling by this church, I am supposed to try to offer help and counsel and teach you from the Bible. Why are you covering the places where you need help the most? Why do you lie to your small group? This is a group of men and women who are gathered together voluntarily who want to grow to be like Christ and they want to do it with you. Are you denying the help that they might offer you and the insight that they might offer you because you're committed to covering yourself with your leaf lies? Where else in the body of Christ are you going to find help like that? (laughs) Let's be honest. Though honesty like that is frightening. It means you have to become vulnerable. Which leads me to my last question that I want to ask and answer this morning. How do you tell the truth? Where does honesty come from? Do you remember what Adam and Eve discovered in the garden? How effective a covering do you think leaves would be? How well do you think that they, that they worked? Probably not very good. I, I don't know how long those leaves lasted, but they probably didn't cover them very well. In fact, the covering, as the story unfolds in Genesis, that they needed came from God Himself. God provided covering for them through the death of an animal. God found them. He found them naked and ashamed, and they were covered with their leaves. They must have looked really silly to Him, wearing these leaves. And God took care of that by, by giving them a covering himself. The skin of an animal, the first leather jacket in the Garden of Eden. It, it covered their shame. It covered their nakedness. And that scene foreshadows what God would do uh, through Christ. It is not the death of an animal that is the permanent solution to our sin and our shame. It's the death of God's Son. He he died in our place. He bore God's full wrath for sin. And before God, we can be covered in Christ's righteousness. The wonder of the Gospel is that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you turn to Him, you are admitting before everybody that you can't cover yourself. I am a Christian, and I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and every strategy that I have that I think I have that works to cover the truth about me, I recognize is insufficient. It's insufficient before God. It's insufficient before you too. 
All of these things that reveal that I am a broken person. All of my failings, my flaws, my habits, my attitudes, you have them and you own them when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. That's part of becoming a follower of Christ, recognizing the mess that is all... That's what we have in common. All of us have in common. We're a mess. We've confessed that as followers of Christ. There's a lot of mess in my life. So much mess that I can't fix it myself. That confession frees you to let down your guard. One of the things that you know for sure that it will be true of your small group when you meet tonight is that everybody there messed up this week in some way. Actually, the gospel does even more. See, the gospel allows us to welcome one another with the grace, with the same grace and the same acceptance that we find before God through Christ. We extend that grace to others. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I know about the mess in your life. And I know because I have experienced it too. I know what welcoming grace is like. And I can hear about your mess. And I can extend the same grace to you that I've received through Jesus Christ. It's, it's springtime. It's beautiful springtime. The, the, the flowers are blooming and the trees have flowers on them. Um, if we had more snow, if we had more snow, it would be disappearing now. Under the sun of the gospel, lying begins to melt away and the truth begins to emerge. The beautiful blooming truth. And one of the ways that you can tell how gospel-centered your marriage really is or how gospel-centered your small group is, or how gospel-centered how much the gospel has embedded itself in our church and in your life is how much the truth about who you are has emerged. Brothers and sisters, because it is part of the old life, because it will not accomplish what you really want, because it is destructive, because it is untouched by the gospel, I exhort you to put off lying. Because it builds truth, uh, trust and provides for your safety. And because it honors the God who never lies, put on the truth. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, our heads are bowed and, and we recognize before you that we are uh, lying people. It's pervasive not just in uh, the news and not just out there in the working world. Lying is pervasive in our homes, in our lives, in our families. God, we recognize from your word how uh, dangerous it is and, and how we're creating uh, a disaster for us uh, through our dishonesty. Father, I pray um, that you would clothe us in the gospel so brilliantly that we would be men and women who speak the truth and people uh, who are so infused with the, with the gospel of grace that we embrace and welcome and help and encourage one another in the midst of our mess. Transform us. It is easy to see how the gospel applies to the words that we say on our tongue. So, so help us to live out the gospel this week with the, the truths that we tell. We pray these things together in Jesus' name saying, Amen.